Guys, an exclamation point on Bill's uh, ad for this Friday. If you haven't been to one of these before, these, these have become about the highlight of the year for me, I think, Good Friday service. We just instituted this, I think, two years ago. And it would be hard for me to imagine a setting that's more helpful in considering what God in Christ has done for us. Uh, we go through a series of readings from uh, Jesus last night and then going into the crucifixion, and it's just, um, it's just outstanding. So if you can come, 6.30, we moved it up an hour this year, so families with little kids might be able to get here. We'll actually black out the windows. That makes us able to control the lighting in here a little bit. And we'll go out in silence. It'll be a great service again, so I hope you can come this Friday. Okay, uh, we're going to be in Job in a minute, but before we get there, I want to share a story from Matthew 16. Um, Ma Matthew 16's got a couple of great stories. One of them is this. Uh, if you remember, Jesus asked his fellows uh, in this chapter, who do men say that I am? So who do other people tell you they think I am? And they said, well, some think you're... Elijah and some think you're John the Baptist. There's other options out there as well. And so then he pointedly asked them, and who do you say that I am? So Peter famously responds, well, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And so Jesus' response at that point is to tell Peter, he says this, you couldn't have known this on your own. It's not flesh and blood that made this known to you, but that's actually God my Father has given you that understanding so that the words out of your mouth are actually words from God. They're words from heaven. You're, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. Jesus says those are words from heaven. Well, you go on down the road, and this is the next incident. This is the next incident. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And you're in bad shape right now, right? So Peter is rebuking his creator and his rabbi, his master. Peter's rebuking him and he says, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So Jesus' response is, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So here's Peter just think about the, the diametric opposition here. Peter just said, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, those are words from heaven. Now Peter says, don't do it. And Jesus says, those are words from hell. You're speaking for my father in one moment, and you're speaking for Satan in the next. Now, there's, there's absolutely no thought that Peter thinks he is Satan's mouthpiece, right? Because he loves Jesus. You remember later, he's... He's a brash guy, but he's emotional, and he's very connected to Jesus. You know he wants the best for Jesus. So in his own mind, no doubt, this is all well-intentioned. Like, I don't want you to be hurt. I don't want those things to happen to you. But of course, that's the very reason for Jesus coming to the earth in the first place was Peter's redemption and yours and mine. That requires the cross. And Peter doesn't understand that in one moment I'm speaking God's words and in the next moment, I'm speaking Satan's words. And if you remember the temptation account in Luke 4, you know, Jesus is in the wilderness 40 days, and then he's hungry, and Satan comes along and tempts him, 
But at the end of the passage, it says, Satan left him until another opportune time. So here is Satan using Peter as another one of those temptations to Jesus to question who he is or to question his mission. So here's Pete speaking for God one moment, speaking for Satan the next. And basically what we'll see is this is going to be the case for Job's wife this morning as well. We're back in that series called Consider Job, and we're going to be looking at Mrs. Job this morning. That's what I'll call her mostly, Mrs. Job. She has a, a very a short appearance in the book, um, but her words are very important, I think, for us to look at. This will be a little different teaching this morning than we've done before. The, the others, for me, I've said this before, this has been the hardest series I've ever taught for me personally. It's been more sobering, more frightening, and I hope a good way, more convicting, more compelling than any other series I've ever done. Very helpful for me. This will be a little different because Job's wife's comments are, are one line, and we want to make sure that we cover that, but I'm going to take a couple excursions, and if you look at your study sheet, it'll say excursus one and excursus two, and I'm taking liberties this morning that I usually don't, so I'm putting you on notice on the front end. The excursions aren't teachings that explicitly come out of this text we're in this morning, okay? So I'm doing what they call a springboard. I'm using the text as a means to address something it references only in tangent, but I want to do that because I can this morning and because it, there are some inferences here we can make. And so you'll pardon me for that. I'm taking more liberty than I usually would. Okay, so Mrs. Job, we've already been, so we're in the seventh message, we've already looked at what happened to Job. We've seen his sufferings, we've seen his loss, we've seen his response. So before we look at how Mrs. Job responds to the same dynamics, we want to consider what she has suffered as well. You remember on that singular day in chapter 1, there's Job, life's normal, life's good, and a messenger comes and says, by the way, this, the Sabaeans came and your, uh, your livestock are gone, your servants are killed. You remember a hammer blow, and then another hammer blow, another servant. You know, by the way, fire from heaven, and these servants are gone, these sheep are gone, and by the way, the Chaldeans came. Remember one after another after another, the last one, by the way, all your children are dead. Same day, and it's one right after the other. It's piling on Job as much as possible. It's easy to forget that Mrs. Job suffered every single hit the same as Job did. Everything he suffered, with one exception, she suffered too. So Job's wife bore those ten children that were killed. Those were her children. She had raised them. She gave birth to them. She lost all her servants, almost all of them many of whom for her in that day, remember, weren't just servants, but they were extended family members. She lost all the wealth she'd known. And when we say this, a lot of times we think that implies greed, but imagine if you're used to a lifestyle, and most of us are, adequate for groceries and medical needs or whatever, and suddenly, let's say you're out on the street, your world would be turned upside down too, and hers was too, so she's gone from full adequacy and now, what are we going to do for our next meal? She suffered the loss of all their wealth as well. 
Remember we said Job had lost his standing in the community. We didn't develop this as far as we could, but he said the lowest people on the social ladder rung were looking down on him. He'd become the butt of their jokes and their songs. Well, that's her standing now too. She's connected to Job. So in the past, she has a place in society. She has a place among her neighbors. And there's this humiliation. And like her husband now, she has no standing. That, and again, I don't want to minimize this. I'm not, this is a hard blow. This would be a hard blow for any of us. Lost all your friends. They look down on you now. So the extreme suffering she experienced was like Job. And the last, we talked about this with Job also, you know, the, the, the blows, the hits on the loss of all those things was one thing. The servants, the wealth, the livestock, the children, right? All of those would have been terrible enough. But you remember we also said Job is struggling for another reason because he thought he knew God. And now he's not sure he does. And he thought he knew how God's world worked. And now he doesn't. His world's been turned upside down. All those things are true of her as well. Same things. She thought, we, we've got this. We know what God's doing. We're living appropriate lives. God's blessing life is good. Now, all of a sudden, all that's gone. And she doesn't know how to make up from down now either, just like Job. The point of all this is to say, before we look at how she did respond, how Scripture, how God chose to give us her response. We need to be empathetic. We need to walk in her shoes. We need to live in her skin a little bit before we get into the negative response she had. Okay, we want to have a little understanding before we start that. Um, oh, what's, what's wrong? You know what? I'm missing the slide, guys. Yeah, I'm missing the slide. Interesting. Don't know how that happened. Okay, well, so much for online. So my image is gone. So in Luke 1, when God describes the parents of John the Baptist, uh, the mother and the father that he's entrusting Jesus' forerunner to, he says this. There was a priest named Zechariah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. So God looks down on that couple, and he describes them the same way God described Job. Blameless, upright, righteous, walking in the fear of God, their life submitted to God. It says that of both of them. Now, this is thin ice, okay? I'm making an argument from silence here, so I'm going out on a little bit of a limb here, and I acknowledge that. Arguments from silence are weak from the start. But sometimes silence is significant as well. In Zechariah and Elizabeth's case, God says plural of both of them the same thing. He does not do that with Job's wife and Job. So in the conversation in heaven, the commendation of blamelessness and uprightness is not ascribed to Mrs. Job, only to Job. And my suspicion, and it's just that, my suspicion, and it's in part strengthened by the response that we do see she makes, 
My suspicion is that she was not Job's spiritual equal and that God could not commend her in the way he could commend her husband. That the difference in the response was because they were on different planes in their spiritual maturity and godliness. That's Mike's take. You don't have to take that to the bank. So, this is my first excursus. Are we equals? You know what? I'm missing slides, guys. I'm missing another one. Let's, uh, you know what? We'll punt on what we can do. We'll punt on what we can do. Okay. Um, in Deuteronomy 22.10, uh, the law of Moses said you can't hitch uh, an ox and a donkey together to plow your field. And think of this for just a minute. They're different sizes. They have different strength. They're different species. God says don't do it. And you know, typically, uh, this is kind of a joke with the camel there, but and these aren't hitched the way they typically would have been. You typically would have used a yoke that would have been a straight piece with curves for their neck. If they're not the same height, if they're not the same strength, both of those animals are going to be working in frustration the whole time because they're not equals. They're not co-equals. They're not meant to work together like that. Well, guys, when it comes to marriage, a husband and wife are a team. And if, if they aren't roughly co-equals, what they'll find is this. One won't be frustrated. They'll both be frustrated. They'll both chafe because they're yoked together, but they're not a good fit. A husband and wife team, if not close, and doesn't have to be exact, will chafe. They'll both be frustrated if they're not somewhere in the same place. If they tend to hold different views in significant areas of life, also it will prove frustrating for both. Um, Kathy and I knew someone uh, that was a Christian. They wanted to get married, describing sort of what their thoughts were along that line. And they know, I'm a Christian. I can only marry another Christian. That's fine. That's a starting point. But they said, if that other person's a Christian, I'm good to go. I don't care about everything else. If they're another Christian, I'm good to go. It's like, that may not serve you well. We tried to communicate gently. That may not serve you well. A friend said uh, that his standard for someone uh, that might be interested in one of his children was they're a growing Christian. They're a growing Christian, right? That's good. (laughs) That's better, right? But it would be good to know before you say I do, like, Callie and Daniel did yesterday, it would be good to know that not only do you hold the same faith, but that you're co-equals enough to be yoked closely together and not both be frustrated. And so things like, do you agree on the big rocks of theology? Theology is not a dirty word, and it's not for academics. It's what do you believe about things like baptism and salvation and your role in the church and numbers of other things. Do you agree on those big rocks of theology? Do you agree on your views of the scripture? Do you have a similar view? This is a big one today for children or service. Because if you don't, what you're going to find is there's frustration. And it's not for one, it's for both. Because if you're not co-equal enough, you're not going to work together well. It's going to be frustrating for both of you. 
Job and his wife don't appear to be on the same page spiritually in their spiritual maturity or their godliness based on the different ways they respond to their suffering. She has the same level of suffering as Job, except his physical affliction. We saw last time, if you look in the book of Job, at Job's response, his initial response is sparkling. God's God, I'm not, he can do as he pleases. And we saw, though, that he survived the initial hit, but there was a spiraling descent, right? He starts accusing God till you get to Job 38, and God says to Job, would you really justify yourself to, and condemn me? That's the crash. Would you really do that, Job? But it takes the dialogues and it takes chapter after chapter before you see that response from Job. The only response recorded in Job about Mrs. Job is the kind of statement I hope none of us would ever make to another person. That it is so far short of the mark, it's the only thing we know about her from Job as far as words from her mouth. And they come out immediately. And they come out at a really, really lousy time. Okay, let's see if we're on base. I'm not... Are you guys going to do this for me? Okay, thanks. So in Job chapter 2, we'll pick up right here, where Satan's going to leave heaven because the last thing he does, last temptation he gives to Job, is that physical affliction. So in chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, for the second time, Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and he struck Job with loathsome swords from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself when he sat in the ashes. So here's Job, sort of in this state of humiliation, humility, mourning, sitting in the ashes, scraping his wounds. That's his condition. And here comes Mrs. Job. You know, oh great. What's she going to say? How is she going to comfort him? How is she going to commiserate with him? So Job 2, verse 9. And his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Are you still holding to this godly stuff? This blameless stuff? Because remember, he said, God's God, we're not. Do you still hold that, she says? And then she says, curse God and die. How would you like your spouse to come up and say that to you? Curse God and die. That's a good day. Curse God and die. Only recorded words she speaks in this whole book. Now, now go back to those words. So if you go back to the conversation in heaven, Satan said, if you do these things to Job, he will curse you to your face. And he never did. So here is Job's wife, and where do you think those words are coming from? Those aren't just her words. Those are words from hell. Those are words from Satan to Job. No different than Peter. Same dynamic. Same dynamic. I don't think Job's wife felt any ill towards him. I, I don't think she hated her husband. I, I don't think she blamed her husband. I think she was in her own pit of despair. Her world, I think because it was more fragile than Job's, I think she knew God less fully than Job did. And I think out of that loss and that suffering, her response was essentially, at least temporarily, a lack of faith entirely. And so she speaks out of her own despair. 
commentators over the years have become more and more kind to Mrs. Job. Uh, some people say, hey, she was telling Job, you know, you poor, poor thing. Uh, if you die, you'd feel better. <laughs> you'd end your suffering. <laughs> I think it's a misreading. I think current commentators simply want to want to soft sell this. I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think she's just in the pit and she's throwing out words of despair and discouragement. And when she says, curse God, that's from Satan. It's what Satan said Job would do. Here's a temptation from his wife to do just that. And then she says, and die. Now you remember when Job was speaking, as we went through those chapters and his response, we did say in the midst of his devolving thought process about God and God's ways, he had these gems of faith. He had these sparkling, clear moments when he said things like, I know my Redeemer lives. I know I'll be raised. I'll know, I know I'll see him with my own eyes. Or that I'm in a process and God's going to bring me forth like gold. He said, even if God slays me, I will still trust him. So he, he twirls down to that crash, eventually to accusing God. But in his speech, he had these sparkling moments of clarity. You don't have any of that with Mrs. Job. She lost her way, she lost her life, as she'd known it, certainly. And for the moment, at least, she lost her faith. When we are in April, when we take this back up, we'll look at the response uh, Job's friends had toward him, the dialogues of Job's friends towards him. And what we'll see, in part, is Job's friends try to use human reasoning to explain the disasters. They talk about reasoning, rationale, this we know, this we know, we apply this, we apply that. Job's wife is the voice of the enemy chiding Job to forsake God. It's a very different dynamic than Job's friends. Job's friends are going to challenge Job's integrity. They're going to say, you're not the man you pretended to be. That's why you're suffering this way. But Job's wife is challenging Job's very faith in God at all. Her words are words from the pit. This is Satan tempting Job again to curse God and die. Now again, I don't think she wished harm on her husband. I suspect, just being at the end of her own rope, she spoke the words coming out of her own despair, depression, her own heart. Right? Peter, Mrs. Job. They love the person they're speaking to, and they wish them well, but they still speak words from the pit of hell. Do you think it's possible, just... Just entertain the possibility. Do you think it's possible that you or I have ever been, would ever be a Mrs. Job? Do you think that's even possible? If it was possible for Peter, do you think maybe it's possible for us? Have you ever been on the receiving end of a Mrs. Job? I don't know. You guys haven't? Man, we, we have. <laughs> what do you think the likelihood is that you'll, you will future or you have been a Mrs. Job to others, probably strong possibility, or that you'll be on the receiving end, probably strong possibility. True story, we had a friend who was overweight. She knew it, she was absolutely upfront about it, you know, a very candid person, generally comfortable in her own skin, but she was heavier than she wanted to be. Well, there was a day, kind of like the life of Job, there was a certain day on which her Friends came over, because she was also just feeling down, just not feeling healthy at all, feeling down. So her friends came over, 
her friends, her Christian sisters in the faith, to pray for her because they loved her. And so they're around her, their hands are on her, and they're praying for her. Well, they start praying about her weight. And, you, you know, right, we're all sensitive about our appearance. We, I get that. Well, it's, you know, she feels a little sensitive, a little vulnerable. She doesn't feel good physically. Now, now they're kind of talking about it. It's coming, coming across a little bit as a, a knife, so she starts weeping. Now, they think those are tears of conviction and repentance. And, man, God is, we're, we're, we're God's mouthpiece right here. God's speaking through us. So they pour it on. And I kid you not, they're casting out every demon of lust and greed and overeating, you name it. And you know what? They went away feeling great. Man, God was with us today. We spoke God's word. And they were killing her. And she was anything but encouraged. She was in the pit of despair after they left because of their words in prayer. They were Mrs. Job, and I'm not sure any of them ever knew. <laughs> Is it possible you or I have ever done that? We think, man, we're on the mark. You know, Peter, he's on the mark. Mrs. Job, she's on the mark. But maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe that's possible that that would happen to you and I as well. James says this. It says in James 3, 9 and 10, he said, with our tongue. Now remember, sometimes our words are very intentional. We mean what we say in a negative sense. But sometimes our words are unintentionally cursing. Unintentionally. He says, with our tongue, with our words, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be. Well-intentioned or not. You know, one of the lessons on this is, is this. Words are so powerful that we have to be particularly careful what we say. I'd say careful in a way most of us aren't, maybe ever. You have to be particularly careful with those words when you're speaking to someone who's particularly vulnerable. And you have to be particularly more careful again when that person in particular state of suffering or loss is someone that's really close to you for whom your voice carries more weight than someone else who didn't know them. You've got to be really careful with your words. Now, if you're looking at your study sheet, this is our second excursus. So I'm leapfrogging, jumping out of the text again to talk about this. Just the thought of the impact of Job's wife on Job. The one person Job might have thought would be there for him emotionally to encourage him when he was down was his wife, but she's not speaking words of encouragement. She's speaking words from the pit. This is just to say the impact of one spouse on another, and you can extrapolate this a little, but the impact of one spouse on another is particularly acute because it's that relationship that God says two people become one new unity. There's no other relationship you have on earth that potentially can bless you more or curse you more than the relationship you have with your spouse. And guys, this is the deal. What one suffers, the other will suffer. And what blesses one will bless both. And at some significant level, this is uniquely true of marriage. 
Now, this can extrapolate a little bit to close friendships, family members, those people who are close enough to you so that their words can either be more soothing and healing or they can be more like the thrust and twist of a knife. That proximity, that relationship gives their words more or less weight, more or less impact. Are we God's voice to remind our spouse when the chips are down? When one of us is down, we're both going to suffer. Are we holding on to encourage them thoughtfully, prayerfully? Are we parroting Satan's unbelief or accusations and temptations? One thing I think particularly uh, destructive, are we calling up past sins or speaking in condemning language to someone who's already down? You know, James, James 5 talks about praying for the sick because their sickness may be connected to sin. 1 Corinthians 11 says the same thing. There, it might be appropriate in a setting to ask them gently, is, in your mind, is there any connection to sin on this? James 5 brings that up as a possibility. But you don't want to presume or assume that what they're suffering is because they've sinned. Job's suffering was not because of any sin. His wife's suffering is not because God said she sinned and I'm punishing her. There's no connection there. You can ask it, but we wouldn't presume it. I want to be very careful what we said. What is the fruit of our words to our spouse, our close friends, or our family? We used to tell our girls what the father gets, the children get. You know, as you read through the scriptural stories, uh, oftentimes it's not just one person who is harmed or blessed. It's a family or it's a tribe, or it's a nation. It's because they're connected, they're related. So we'd say what the children get is what the father has. What the father has is what the children get. That applies in spades to your marriage relationship. The best thing you can do as a husband for your experience of your marriage is to sacrificially, Christ-like, love your wife whether she deserves it or not, and she probably doesn't. Right? Self-sacrificial love, does she deserve that? The way she's acting, the way she's treating me, the way she's talking? Absolutely not. Best thing you can do is sacrificially love her anyway. Because when you bless her, you bless your union and you bless yourself. And the best thing you can do as a wife, though your husband doesn't deserve it, is to respect him and pray for him, and entrust his leadership to God. Not because he deserves it, but because when you do that, you're investing in your spouse, you're blessing your spouse, therefore you are blessing yourself and your marriage, because what one gets, the other gets as well. well it's impossible for one spouse not to significantly affect the other spouse. And you'll see this in spades in the book of Proverbs, what a great blessing marriage can be on one hand, but on the other hand, if you marry the wrong kind of person, there are multiple verses. It's like being on a, in a house with a dripping roof or I'm out in the rain because my spouse isn't a godly spouse. We can have profound impact on each other as husband and wife. And if one goes down, the other can still be there for them. You don't have to both go down at the same time. We saw last week that you and I have knowledge of the gospel, of, of God's love for us, of his commitment to us, of the fact that he uses suffering today in a way Job didn't know he would redemptively. 
We have that knowledge. We said we've got a rock we can stand on when life flips us upside down. The fact that your spouse goes down in a pit of despair doesn't mean you have to go there with them. You can stand on the rock. You can pray for them. You can speak words of truth and life very, very carefully, prayerfully, thoughtfully. In Job's case, his wife had unwittingly become the voice of their common adversary. I don't think that's what she wanted to do, but that's what happened just as Peter had become the voice of Satan for Jesus. Now, her story doesn't end there. Sorry, that was... I don't know, guys, where I am. We'll just call that good. Um, when Job is restored, she's going to be restored too. And you know, if all we knew about Mrs. Job is curse God and die we might be tempted to write her off. We might say, uh, she's beyond redemption. She's beyond hope. Listen to her. What a nasty person. No hope for her. You know, you've got to be very, very careful about writing someone off. right? What is, one of the things God brags about on himself throughout the Bible is that he's merciful and compassionate. Loyal love. Loves us when we don't deserve it, right? Throughout the Bible. He delights in mercy and compassion. So when we are tempted to write someone off who's still drawing breath, they're still alive on the earth, we're premature. We're making judgments too soon. Imagine this, and I'm making this up, part of it. Imagine you're the parent, the mother or the father of the thief on the cross. Johnny was always a bad boy. He never obeyed. He started running with the wrong crowd. He was in and out of jail. You know, we told him, we talked to him, we warned him, and here he is. This is the way we warned him. Here he is. There's no hope for Johnny. But maybe you hear him say to Jesus, you know, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And if you heard Jesus say, you'll be with me today in paradise, there was still breath, there was still hope. You know, and you've got that mercy and compassion of God on a guy at the end of his life. Who would have thunk? that Johnny would have come to Christ at the end of that kind of life. You couldn't have predicted it, but God did it. So we've got to be very, very careful when we're tempted to write people off. If there's life and breath, we can still pray for them. This is from James 5.11. That's why that's up there. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And he was compassionate and merciful, not just to Job, but to Job's wife as well. She's restored with Job. Think of this too. So think of a role beyond just the words she said. So it was Job's wife who provided those 10 children that they both lost, right? She bore them, she raised them. And when God restores Job, he gives Job 10 more children. Where'd they come from? That's probably Mrs. Job as well. She bore him 20 children. That's painful to think about, isn't it, Job? <laughs> bore them, nursed them, raised them. That was a real labor of love. Thank you. That was a pun. Some of you got it. Labor of love. His blessing in part came through Mrs. Job after her words. 
He's restored and she's restored. Health and wealth and blessing is restored to Mrs. Job just like Job. She wasn't beyond God's mercy and compassion. She's restored and she's part of being blessed, having those children and experience a good life again with her husband. Job's blessed because she's there. It's interesting, and I'm not even sure why, but when it mentions that second set of ten children, same as the first, seven boys, three girls, it mentions the beauty and the names of his three daughters. It doesn't say that about any of the other siblings or children. How lovely they were, none lovelier in the land than those daughters. Almost a little bit of a statement of the blessing at the end, the restoration was even better than it had been before. She was not beyond God's compassion and mercy. You know, we'll close down on this. I'm trying. I'm on. I'm not going anywhere. Can you advance me one? That'll be the last. Maybe. Yeah, if we get there, fine. Um, when you think of the Apostle Peter, if you read Matthew 16, you thought that was the end of the story, um, you, you might have some reason for that, but you'd be wrong. You know, he's brash, he's really emotional, he says things without thinking, just like Matthew 16. But you know, what you see, thanks, what you see is he continues to blow it and Jesus continues to restore him, just like Mrs. Job. Not only that, but Peter remains the key figure in the life of the early church through Acts chapter 12. So Jesus warns him, hey, I'm the shepherd. I'm going to be struck down, you sheep. You're going to be scattered. Who does he talk to and say, help your brothers later? He talks to Peter. He says, Pete, this is on you. After the resurrection, you help your brothers. They're going to need it. You're going to be there for them. And Acts chapter 2, actually a verse that Larry referenced today in Sunday school class. In Acts 2, who is it that stands up to speak for the Spirit-filled apostles to tell the Jews that they'd crucified their Messiah to cut them to the heart such that 3,000 would be saved that day and brought to Christ. That's Peter again. Not beyond redemption. When you look at the book of Acts, chapters 1 through 12 are arguably primarily Peter's story. Just like 13 through 28 are primarily Paul's story. God was not done with Pete. Even though... One moment he's speaking for God, the next moment he's speaking for Satan. He wasn't done with them. He's not done with us. If there's hope for them, there's hope for you and I as well. If you've been a Mrs. Job to someone else, it would be good to confess that to God and then to confess and to apologize, to ask forgiveness from whoever you've played that role to for hurtful words, for unthinking words, maybe for words that were well-intentioned but didn't come off that way. <laughs> There's a difference between men and women, isn't there? And uh, you'll see this when you're married. So sometimes Kathy and I intentionally trying to be helpful. One of us will say to the other, that's not helpful. <laughs> you're not helping. <laughs> we mean well. <laughs> We're here for you, just not doing a very good job of it. We just apologize and keep going. If you've been on the receiving end of a Mrs. Job's words, forgive that person. The one thing you don't want to do 
is engender a bitterness in your own soul, a cancer and a poison of unforgiveness. Man, they said this. They cut me. It hurt. I'm not going to forgive them. Worst thing you can possibly do. We forgive them. We leave them to God. And we should pray for them. I don't know if uh, brothers here, you know we've got that brand new parking out there. Paved. It looks so nice. And you know what the first thing that happened was before you guys parked on it today? Somebody came in and with a truck, they spun a donut in there and they tore the surface up, you know? So a brother that I don't think is here told me this. He said, the first thing I did was I prayed for their salvation. I thought, great, you know, I'm forgiving them. I'm praying for their salvation. He said, the next thing I prayed for was that they would be so convicted they'd have to come and apologize. They'd have to repent. Great, doing great. He says, the third thing I prayed for was that a box of nails would drop in front of their truck <laughs> and, and all four tires would go down. <laughs> he forgave and he prayed for them. I love that. So, so if you've been to Mrs. Job, if you've been on the receiving end of Mrs. Job, it's not the end, right? It's not the end of hope. It's not the end of encouragement. It's not the end of life for any of us. We can, we can go on. Well, let's pray. Father, thanks for loving us with great compassion and great mercy. They're new every morning. Lord, all of us need not only your redemption through salvation in Christ, Lord, we need your daily cleansing by your word. We need our hearts and minds renewed by truth. Lord, we need your spirit to simply help us know what you're up to in the moment. Help us to have tender hearts, tender spirits to be led by you so that words of encouragement really are. Lord, help us to repent of narrow or small-minded thinking by which we would cut others off from your grace and mercy. Lord, we throw ourselves recklessly at your feet because of your great compassion, and we want to entrust others whom we've hurt or others who have hurt us to your compassion and grace as well. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>